Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been a busy time at the House of Commons with the latest travel restrictions, new COVID guidance, and the announcement of the fall fiscal update. What do we expect the announcement to include? Well, we'll discuss that. Also, our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. The province is offering loan guarantees to help not-for-profit long-term care homes acquire development loans. Is that policy actually going to help? And facing a familiar opponent in the Eastern Final, the Ticats go into Toronto to take on the Argonauts. Who has the edge? We'll get into that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Business carrying on in Ottawa, as you might expect. Uh, the Trudeau Liberals uh, told us yesterday they're going to provide, a, well, I guess, a really a health update on the federal finances. Uh, the document's going to provide the government's outlook for the economy. I mean, this is, let's face it, a government with some challenges right now. High inflation rates, flooding in B.C., a new COVID variant. Finance Minister Christia Freeland made the announcement during question period yesterday. Important to Canadians that we are careful and transparent with our nation's finances. That's why I'm pleased to announce that I will be giving an economic and fiscal update to Canadians on December 14th. Uh, the timing of that is uh well, shall we say interesting. I want to talk with uh, our good friend Abigail Beeman about that. Of course, Abigail is the Ottawa correspondent for Global National. Uh, and first of all, Abel, th- so much for going on here today. really appreciate you jumping in. Uh, thanks for the time today. You were uh, you were there yesterday in the Commons, weren't you? Yes, I was. Uh, strange to see such a full House of Commons after it was my first time uh, in the House for a question period since before the pandemic. So definitely uh, quite different to see everybody back there. Uh, how, how surreal on. was that for you? I mean, you know, it, it's been so long. Did, Exactly. So it was really surreal uh, to see, just to be in such a full place, to hear all that heckling, to see those things that the camera doesn't necessarily pick up and that you certainly miss out when you have virtual parliament uh, in, in terms of, of the, the, the live element of, of parliament and, and of that collaboration. Uh, not always collaborative, but there you go. Uh, but of course, you don't forget that it was a pandemic with everybody wearing their masks. Yeah, exactly. I, I follow you on Twitter, and it's always fascinating ah, to see your yeah. observations on this, uh, especially the one yesterday, as you said, as you were looking for the, the, the press gallery yesterday, uh, some, some weird things going on. There's always that communication going on that the TV cameras doesn't catch. Uh, and and I, this one caught me, too, because I've been up there in that gallery as well uh, this time of year. Not everybody's paying rapt attention to what's going on on the floor, are they? As you mentioned, there's a, quite a few of the MPs who are just signing off on Christmas cards that are going to get mailed out this week. Right. And to be fair, because some MPs take issue that we, uh, you know, needle them for writing their Christmas cards during question period. But at any question period, not everybody is paying rapt attention and you have people on their phone or using the opportunity to read briefing documents or what have you. But this time of year, definitely you could see some uh, Christmas cards being filled out. And that's a, a, an old tradition of, of MPs who mail out, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Christmas cards to uh, constituents, etc. So yes, that was certainly on display today, yesterday being uh, early December. Yeah, COVID or no COVID, I guess. Sometimes it is just business as usual up there, isn't it? Yeah, like I said, with those masks on, you certainly were reminded that we are still in a pandemic. And of course, there's also uh, the vaccine rules. Uh, Personally, as a press gallery member, my pass has been updated. I had to show my proof of uh, vaccination and and, uh, and my pass got some sort of uh, update on it. So when I scan, I'm still allowed in the house. And that's true for anybody who has uh, a pass or or needs access to to the grounds. There's, There's that element as well. 
As you were reporting last night on Global National, I we just mentioned the clip here of Finance Minister Christian Freeland announcing the fiscal update on the 14th. Uh, the timing of this is interesting. I know that uh, former Budget Officer Kevin Page has already weighed in on this and said that should have been done weeks ago when Parliament sat again uh, to give time for debate. Uh, this is only a couple of days before they break for the Christmas break. The timing is uh, interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah, lots of frustration, as you can imagine, from oppo- from the opposition on that point. I mean, there already is frustration that it took two months for the House to come back. The election September 20th, the House came back November 22nd, uh, and they still don't have committees up and running, although now there's uh, moves in the works to make to, to get those committees up, up and running. But uh, a big part of, of, of the economic update, or a big part of the government's spending plans, were already announced back in October, and that's the $7.4 billion for the latest retooling of pandemic benefits. Uh, and and the opposition has been calling to study that in in finance committee, but of course there there haven't been committees to take a, a look at that after that point. So that that's going to change. But as you point out, time is is really running out before before the the Christmas holidays. The other element that is, is relatively new, obviously, we just heard about the variant this week uh, that, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, and it's it's the reintroduction, I guess, of some travel restrictions. I, and I know they talked about that a little bit in the House yesterday. Uh, what are they planning and, and what's the response you're hearing about this, Abigail? Yeah, interesting. First of all, we the journalists in the press gallery were all sort of a, a little surprised that, that the uh, opposition questioning only one question was about the variant and and travel restrictions. But that aside, it is really something that's continuously changing. And the news yesterday was from the American side that the Americans are requiring um, a, uh, a negative test within uh, the day before you travel. Uh, and, and so, of course, we were asking ministers on their way in, are we going to change the rules in, in Canada? Because and, and I don't blame anybody who can't keep up with the specifics of this, but the latest is uh, that all travelers entering Canada regardless of vaccination status, need to present uh, or need to take a, P- a PCR test upon arrival, separate from the test they already have to take within 72 hours of landing here. But the exception to all that is the Americans, that at this point, Americans do not have to take that arrival test. Uh, or, uh, again, the extra wrinkle is we should say 100% of Americans don't have to take the arrival test because there still is randomized arrival testing uh, at the border. So there's so many moving pieces here. Uh, we are having an update from officials and ministers today, so we'll see if anything changes on this Friday. Abigail, what about the attitude there with with the American reaction to this? As you mentioned, the, you know, the exception in the Canadian policy was going to be, oh, no, not Americans. You guys are going to pass on this. And it was hours later that the Americans said, well, we're not giving you one. Basically, you got to play by the same rules as everybody else does. And this is uh, I, I, really an extension of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks where, you know, this administration south of the border right now is not really cutting us any breaks here. Well, yeah, I, I certainly the optics of it certainly appear that way. However, we knew that the United States was in talks that what they were planning to announce some sort of uh, enhanced measures at the border due to Omicron. Uh, we knew that that was in the works. Didn't necessarily know, you know, would Canada be included? Would Canada not be included in that? But <laughs> officials, you know, did didn't really have any, the health minister, transport minister, nobody's really given us a good reason at this point uh, for why Americans are not uh, included in this. Um, they, they said that they're watching the situation closely and it's up to what's happening south of the border. And of course, when the, 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 the announcement was made that Americans would not be included in these new rules, there hadn't been a case of Omicron identified in the United States, but, you know, nobody was under any guises that that, that wouldn't happen and, and then it did. Mm-hmm. So, 
yeah, we'll see. But as I as I say, just a, a rapidly changing situation. Absolutely. Well, and because of that, as you mentioned, it almost changes by the hour now. Uh, follow you on Twitter, of course, and we're watching for uh, your reporting over the next couple of days on Global National as to what's happening in the Capitol. Uh, always a pleasure, Abigail. Thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great weekend, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. You as well. Thanks for having me. Take care. Abigail Beeman, of course, Ottawa correspondent for Global National. It must be kind of weird, to, especially in the press gallery, to actually be back there. I mean, it's been, what, 20, 21 months now? since they basically shut everything down. And, and don't forget, I know that there have been some virtual meetings and there were some people in the House, but the, the media were not part of that for the most part. And, and it's, uh, it's I, I guess they'd like to think it's getting back to business as usual. But uh, then, of course, bingo, along comes the fifth variant. And we're, well, we're not back to square one necessarily, but you're kind of wondering just how long this is going to go on and what the implications are going to be. And as Abigail just mentioned, uh, lots of changes in policy now because of what's happening with that fifth variant in the uh, federal government. And for that matter, the provincial governments are going to have to respond to it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned off the top, some of the other things happening around our world, uh, one of them including, of course, some travel changes and possible restrictions. Uh, yesterday, the federal health minister said that uh, after speaking with the provinces, the focus now is going to remain on COVID testing for air travelers arriving from other countries other than the U.S., as we said, they get an exemption. Jean-Yves Duclos, who is the uh, federal minister in charge, uh, added three countries this week to that long, long list. The stricter measures are coming as public health officials around the world are warning of a potentially dangerous new variant, of course, the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Well, we all agree that the current focus of our efforts now is to protect Canadians, the health and safety of Canadians from the uh, concerns seen in other continents, in particular around the 10 countries that we have identified, 7 plus 3, but also we, we've seen the new variant uh, arise in other countries in the world. Well, uh, is the government doing everything they can be doing? And are they going down the right road here? Have they learned from uh, past variants uh, over the last, well, almost 19 months now. Joining us to talk about this and uh, our weekly roundup of what's going on with uh, politics, uh, our good friend, of course, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star, that covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, good to have you with us. Uh, I know you're doing everything you can to, to, to battle the, the pandemic. You're getting the shots and doing everything else. Is the government doing everything that they can be doing here? Well, it's... it's... Is the top, this is particular. I mean, you make all your mistakes. We've gone through that phase, and you know, not acting quickly enough, and and then you'll probably be accused of this this time, of, you know, of acting too hastily in terms of, you know, making people have shots when they come back to you know and they fly back into Toronto or not tests, I should say, not shots. But you know, it is what it is. I hate to use that expression, but it is. It really. We, we've just got to do whatever it takes to try and battle this. I mean, if it takes a, a booster shot, if it takes testing at the airport, it just got to be done. And I know people are sick and tired of it. There's no question of that. But we've got to, you know, this is something we're going to be living with for a long time. So I think the government's doing just about all it can right now without interrupting the economy too much because they've really this is a fine balance now this economy can't take another whack so they're trying to do what they can tell people wear their mask and and socially distance and you know get tested and and get your booster and all that good stuff and not shut the province down and that's i think that's where it is right now the thing is 
we haven't done everything that we were supposed to do to, to get this thing under control. Uh, and I, I mean, collectively, we are not, not just the Canadian government, but other governments as well. You know, when the vaccine was developed, it was like, thank God we finally got this. And, you know, we're going to make sure that it goes to all four corners of the earth. And even the, you know, the third world countries are going to get there because we're not safe until everybody's been vaccinated. And we all believe that back in January, February. Well, the numbers are up right now. We haven't done that. You know, the vaccines have not been getting to those countries that need it most. And, and some of the ones that do have the money to buy them, they're getting gouged by the drug companies. So the vaccine rates are down. I mean, this variant that we just talked about here uh, is, a, you know, presumed to have started in South Africa. They only have a 41% vaccination rate in that country. If, well, well, there's some adults. states that are just as that little yeah. as well. I mean, it's absolutely, we, we aren't going to conquer this, or at least bring it to its knees, if not conquer it unless we get the vaccines right around the world, just like they did with polio and, and other major diseases. That's what you have to do. You have to make sure everybody gets their share, and that's not happening right now. And quite frankly, we're, we're, we're all being pretty greedy in, in the, the Western Hemisphere and saying, you know, well, we'll look after our folks here first. Well, let's, let's get them looked after and let's get that uh, vaccine available to all the countries that want it and need it. Somebody posted a picture on, uh, a picture on Facebook the other day, and it was, uh, I think it was from around early 1960s, uh, and it was a line, long, long line of parents and kids getting the polio vaccine, and they were literally lined up. It was amazing to see, but I vaguely remember those days. I was just a little guy for myself at the time. Uh, I didn't see any protest signs there, like my body, my choice or anything. They realized, my God, we've got to eradicate polio, and this is the way to do it. Roll up your sleeve. And I was a little kid back then. I didn't like getting the needles. I'm still not crazy about it, but I understand that it's something we need to do. I, I don't know that message is resonating with an awful well, lot of people. It, it isn't. Even, even in the House of Commons, it's not even resonating with everyone. I just I can't get over all the, the reticence of getting a vaccine. You know, I mean, there was a there was a uh, obit in, this, in the spec the other day about uh, a man. He, he was a lot, one of the last surviving uh, people in the Devil's Brigade, mm-hmm. and, and you know, here's a guy that you know put his life on the line, you know, so so we could get vaccines, so we could live a free life, and and here we have all these folks are just saying, oh no, no, you can't do that, you know, making up all the kinds of excuses. It's just ridiculous. Get the bloody needle and, and, and live with it. Because I remember those days. I'm 72 years old. But I remember those days when they're lined up for, for the polio needles. And people, you know, you didn't see that. I don't remember anybody holding a sign ever saying, don't get this, don't get this uh, shot because it'll, it'll do whatever to you. And I, just, I guess that's just the difference in today's society. I I sometimes don't understand it, but, you know, so be it. Well, the problem here, and, I, I, you know, how many times do you have to hit your head against the wall before you realize, hey, if I don't do that, it, it won't hurt. It's the same thing with the variants. We're on to our fifth variant right now. Our vaccination rates still aren't at the rate where they should be, although we've done pretty well in Canada, but there are still some holdouts. And, and as you mentioned, in North America, some holdouts and some, some spots that need to be addressed. You know, we've been a little bit lax when it comes to mask wearing, and you still see that if you go to the grocery store and other places. If we don't do that, we already know what the consequence is, Badger. I mean, I don't want to go down through another lockdown. I I still remember this time last year, we thought, hey, I think we maybe have seen the worst of this. And then bingo, a week before Christmas, everything gets shut down. Uh, You know, we don't want to go there again. But the trouble is, 
there's always there's going to be that segment of society that's not going to get it. And it, we and this is we're in this for the long haul. There's no question about that. This is going to be around for a very long time. I'm not saying anything that scientists and, and everyone haven't t- told us already, but it's it it's going to be here for quite a while until we were able to uh, you know to arrest the uh, effects of it. But it, and people have to get used to it. I I just it, I get lost for words sometimes when I try to explain the importance of her when I run into somebody who is an anti-vaxxer, or anti-masker, and that. And I've gotten to the point, Bill, where I don't even bother anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it, it just I, I won't waste my breath on on somebody who just refuses to use a, a modicum of uh, common sense. Does the political will exist right now to to enforce these things? I mean, there was always well, we don't want to really you know tick that group off. We don't want to do this, uh, and and as a result, we had well, like you say, a mass shutdown. I don't necessarily think a shutdown is inevitable here. Uh, there may be some some areas that are going to have to go through some some more restrictive uh, situations because of what's going on. Uh, but have have our politicians learned from this? Do they understand that they've got to be adamant about this. And then when there are flare ups here, as many of the experts have suggested, uh, that that maybe that particular community may have to have more restrictions. But that doesn't mean everybody has to have more restrictions. I don't know that we're smart enough to be able to do this and to be able to stick handle our way around this now. Well, you see what Germany has done. They're they're basically telling people who aren't, and I don't. I'm not agreeing with this. Believe me, <laughs> this is a, a, a bridge too far. But the Germans have, have you know, saying that people who uh, who are unvaccinated, we just want you to stay home. That's it. Period. Like you know, house arrest almost. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, that's like I say, but that's what that's how Germany's, you know, dealing with the the concerns that they have. And to answer your question about the politicians, have they, have they, you know, really understood? I would say most have understand the seriousness of it, but there's still ones that, you know, in the House of Commons, you know, won't tell us whether they've been vaccinated or not. So when that, you know, I'm sorry, but the absence of an answer is an answer. And if you're you're not prepared to tell, you know, your leader that whether you're vaccinated or not. Uh, we pretty well know what the answer is, and there's still people at the you know, the House of Commons that are either refusing or, or simply won't say. Got to ask you very quickly about that uh, because you've been watching Queens Park and Parliament Hill for years and years and years, and and we know that you know it, it can be crazy in there sometimes. I mean, question period. We were just talking with Abigail Beeman about question period, and that's a rather raucous time, as you know. Looks like a bunch of kids on a sugar high a lot of the time. But there was one unanimous vote this week, and it was on the conversion therapy bill, uh, which, by the way, has not cleared all the hurdles yet. It still has to go to the Senate, and the Senate kind of messed around with it last time they tried to get this done. But how often have, in your career have you seen everybody agree on something, which is, still is a controversial piece of legislation? It doesn't happen very often. In my career, I bet you I saw it, oh, gosh, I would maybe 10 times over, you know, 40 years or so. It, it happens, but it's it's usually on on some kind of motherhood thing, which which hey, believe me, yeah. I can see, and I think the the conservatives were smart to 
to put this to rest and not let this be a, a wedge uh, factor for the liberals. And they and they agreed that you know this conversion therapy has to, it has to be banned. Period. Mm-hmm. And and rightly so. I mean, it's just I I, I think about it and I go, you got to be kidding. In this day and age, you're you're trying to convince people that they aren't what they want to be. Uh, give me a break. Well, I got to check. One box for Aaron O'Toole on this, because the you know the insiders told us that basically that's what he told us caucus. You know, it's time to move on. If you don't agree with this, too bad. Uh, we're going to vote for this and move this and get it out of there. And and it might have been a politically savvy move. I, you know, I'm sure some of the people in the Conservative Party that that did not vote against this uh, still might have some reservations about it. But they 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 did the right thing and they moved it on. And it's off the agenda right now until the Senate, of course, does what they need to do with it. Uh, and that's the kind of work you need to do sometimes. So, you know, if people are looking for that kind of leadership, we shall see. Although there's, as you say, not too many days left until they go on Christmas break, which is usually about four or five months. And we'll see if anything gets done there. And that's going to be another topic that I know you and I will probably talk about next week uh, as they head towards the Christmas break. I mean, you know, with this variant coming out, should they be, you know, back at work earlier than they usually do after the Christmas break? But let's hold off on that for another uh, couple of days. Glad you're doing well. Uh, thanks so much for this today. Have a great weekend. Oski wee wee on Sunday, and uh, we'll talk oh, to you yes. next week. Oh, yeah. Uh, go tie cats, go. You betcha. Thanks a lot, Richard. Take uh, care. See you later. Bye-bye. Richard Brennan, former journalist, of course, with a star, and uh, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. And uh, it's uh, interesting. Uh, and love to tell about it, too. Didn't even get the T-shirt. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring you up to speed on, uh, well, an issue that we've been talking about long before the pandemic, but certainly a lot more since the pandemic has been upon us, long-term care facilities uh, and uh, not-for-profit long-term care facilities. We already know about how the, the pandemic ravaged uh, through there, and uh, there have been some serious, cons- uh, I think, concerns, legitimate concerns about the way that the provincial government has handled this. Uh, the government is now say they have stepped up and offering now loan guarantees for not-for-profit Ontario long-term care development. Uh, is this going to be effective? Is it addressing one of the pressing needs? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Amit Arya, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care and Palliative Care Physician. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this government program. I know that uh, Minister Phillips, since he's taken over this portfolio, uh, has uh, suggested he wanted to be more proactive uh, and, and put the, the infusion of cash into uh, long-term care uh, that has been sadly needed for the last little while. Is this a step in the right direction, Doctor? Yeah, so there are some some positives, but I feel that we could be doing a lot better given you know the catastrophe that we've seen in long-term care during the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the positives is that they are looking to hire about 27,000 new staff, mostly PSWs. Uh, the problem with that is, is that it's not enough, and we have a crisis today with PSWs and not enough nurses, which are sadly, uh, you know, I feel, you know, by and large left out of the government's plan. I mean, we call these facilities nursing homes for a reason, and not having, you know, not having enough skilled nurses is a huge problem. Uh, the other issue, of course, as you mentioned, is really related to, you know, for-profit delivery of long-term care. And we absolutely know, I mean, we've seen it during the pandemic, that there's a dangerous contradiction um, with for-profit companies who have a primary obligation to wealth extraction to pay dividends to shareholders versus what we all want, which is public funding of high-quality care for people who are most vulnerable in long-term care. Well, and that was one of the things I know you and I talked about this on this program some months ago. Uh, when we talked about some of the horrible conditions in some of these facilities. And uh, 
and then the story came out that one of these major uh, for-profit facilities uh, actually ended up giving bonuses to their boards of directors saying, great job during the pandemic, people. And then the next week turned around and said to the province, we don't have any money to fix our, our aging infrastructure. Uh, now, they backed off on the bonus system because of public pressure, but it kind of speaks, doctor, to the mindset of some of these organizations. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you're 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 exactly right, Bill. I mean, these um, uh, companies or corporations are what we call financialized, which means that their their number one obligation and their relationship is with shareholders. And what that means is that CEO bonuses or you know other you know any other executive payouts are dependent on how much profit they generate for shareholders. And that obviously goes against any type of principle which we believe in, which is obviously about providing high quality care once again. And I'll add in a very important point here is that, you know, all these facilities, whether they're for profit or non profit, are actually subsidized by us as a taxpayer, meaning the government actually subsidized, you know, building, sure. uh, you, you know, new buildings, uh, redevelopment, uh, you know, the actual care. So what's happening is, is that in the non profit facilities, any surplus money goes back into care. Whereas in the for-profit facilities, any surplus money, uh, obviously, and, you know, corners are cut, but any surplus money, you know, goes out to shareholders. And as a taxpayer, I mean, obviously, I don't want that. I want all my money going towards frontline care and making sure that people are at least getting the best support that they can. There's an expectation here, though, when an announcement like this is made, doctor, that, well, thank God, they're finally going to increase the staffing. Uh, but but that's that may be the message they want to give. But you and I know there's a reality here. Uh, that for every person that they hire, uh, in, in some of these places, there's two people going out the back door saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm not making enough money. I can't support my family. Uh, the, the working conditions here are awful. I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, pushed to the limit. And, you know, no matter how, you know, best intentions of the, that they may have to, to want to do something and make a difference here, uh, they've got a long way to go here to improve working conditions and make this an attractive uh, a vocation for people that want to get into this. Yep, that's exactly right. And as Dr. Pat Armstrong, who's one of the senior, uh, you know, researchers, one of the most famous researchers of long-term care in, in Canada has said, the conditions of work determine the conditions of care. So, I mean, even if we are making this investment, which is so important into hiring more staff, I mean, we need them to stay and we need that continuity of care. And that can only happen, as you mentioned, by improving working conditions, which is so important. And that includes giving people full-time jobs, permanent jobs so they don't have temporary agency uh, jobs where they're precariously employed, giving people permanent paid sick days uh, and other benefits. And to be honest, also providing people with mental health and, um, you know, grief and bereavement supports because the work in long-term care, aside from the pandemic, is actually very emotionally hard. Uh, I see it every day, actually, that, you know, staff in long-term care have very loving and compassionate relationships with the residents that they care for, often almost a family-like relationship. And, you know, there's a lot of suffering that people experience in long-term care, and the staff is witness to that. And, you know, we know that people are very sick, and for most people, it's their last year or two of life that they spend in long-term care. So we need to support the staff to be able to provide the care and also sort of, you know, support their resilience and well-being through, once again, mental health and, uh, you know, trauma, grief and bereavement support. Well, and even if you don't have a loved one who's in a facility or working in a facility like this, I mean, we all, I, I, we all know somebody, a dear friend of mine, uh, just passed away after living a few years, the remaining years of his life in long-term care. And, and the family
family had nothing but praise for the staff and said they were just incredible. You know, they went above and beyond. The problem, of course, is there's just you can't be in five places at once. And, and until they address those staffing levels, that level of care is always going to be questionable in situations like this. Some homes do it better than others, as you've talked about, doctor, but there's got to be uh, provincial standards. And I know the ministers talked about that. We're going to do that and we're going to enforce them. I'm hoping that's going to be the case. But I also have heard stories over the last couple of weeks still that there are still staff members that are still working two or three jobs here. And that's not supposed to be happening. They promised, the government that is, promised that wasn't going to happen. Well, if you don't pay them a living wage, they have to do something like that. Can they, they not connect those dots and understand that's one of the root problems here? I mean, I think they should. I mean, after what we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think the dots should have been connected a long time ago, to be very honest with you, Bill. I mean, I can share with you a story that I heard uh, from a PSW working on the front lines in long-term care a few weeks ago. So this PSW started at 6 in the morning and was still there at 8 at night uh, because she was so worried and she cared so much for the residents that she looked after, but she stayed Uh, and was planning to stay even a couple of hours extra because she knew if she left at that time, after over 12 hours of back-breaking work, that there would be two residents who wouldn't get a shower for another couple of weeks. So obviously this is not acceptable to anyone. This is actually just gross neglect. And as once again, as you said, you're very right, this is not the fault of the health workers. There's just not enough of them. And unfortunately, when we talk about burnout and staffing shortages, it's a vicious cycle where obviously if we leave someone working in conditions like that and somebody who's overworked, well, then they're more likely to burn out and leave as well. So this is actually a crisis and an urgent scenario. And waiting until 2025, as the government is planning, is not enough. And secondly, the legislation actually talks about an average of four hours of direct hands-on care per day. And what that does, it's an average across the sector. So it means that certain homes can be way under and maybe certain homes will be way over. And we can all predict which facilities, you know, those will be in each category. So what we need is that this should be a bare minimum. I mean, four hours is not a lot for anyone who's looked after a loved one, you know, with dementia. We all know that four hours is is a basic minimum standard and it should be each facility where each resident is just guaranteed that amount of care. And in the past, we all know that what happened was they said, well, you know, we're not going to do much about this. We can't afford to. We've all heard the excuses. Uh, and family members would have to fill in those gaps. Well, you know, with COVID and restrictions that were going on, that was simply impossible. Uh, but that's putting an awful lot of pressure on family members anyway who have other responsibilities. Uh, you know, when you, you put somebody in a facility like this and you're lucky enough to get a spot in, in one of the better ones, and there are some, as you mentioned, doctors, some good ones here. Uh, you expect the level of care to be there for them. That's what it's all about. I mean, these are people, as you mentioned, that are in their, their last days or months, uh, and, and they deserve uh, what we can offer them and give them in situations like this instead of simply looking at the bottom line. And, you know, you mentioned about PSWs, and God bless them. I know some people that do that, and they're, they're wonderful, dedicated people. Uh, but let's face it, there's more PSWs and more part-timers there because it affects the bottom line of the facility. That's not supposed to be a factor here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. And I'll share sort of another aspect of what should be happening in these facilities. So firstly, you're very right, Bill. Thank you for pointing that out, that not everyone has family members. Uh, In fact, uh, what we often see is that family members, because our home care system is so terrible, uh, family members are often in crisis themselves and completely burnt out, uh, you know, by the time their loved one actually gets, uh, you know, a bed in a long-term care facility. You know, other than that, when we're talking about these minimum sort of standards of care and minimum hours of care, I mean, it's it's much more than that. And really, I mean, it's very sad to me as a physician, and this is something that I see day in and day out, 
that when we're speaking about this, I mean, we're talking about basic care and hygiene, like showering people, you know, making sure they're nourished well, getting them to the bathroom on time, getting them out of their bed or wheelchair, making sure they can go for a walk. But to be honest, I mean, these people are human beings and they need much more than what we call basic care. The staff should have time to sit down with someone if they want to, like, I don't know, enjoy a game of cards or a board game. They should be allowed to do that. They should really be allowed to sort of promote activities that give people happiness meaning and joy and honestly as someone who works in long-term care there's so much fulfillment in actually you know the care but we just need more staff we need to improve the working conditions and as i mentioned specifically when we talk about more staff we need them urgently and we also need more nursing well we're not going to give up on this i know you certainly are and especially with your organization of uh, doctors uh, for justice and long-term care uh, we need to have long voices and loud voices that are going to keep this on the air. There is a, uh, there's a provincial election coming up next year, and and I know this is going to be front and center, and we're going to make sure that it is, uh, to make sure that, uh, that we hold this ministry's feet to the fire, what, what needs to be done here for for our, our loved ones uh, in this particular uh, aspect. Uh, like you say, I, I, any money from the government, I guess, is a good first step, uh, but they've got to come to grips, I think, as you've mentioned, Doctor, with the, the realities here. And uh, we need giant steps, not baby steps, to try to rectify this. Right. I mean, absolutely agree. I mean, after close to 4,000 people died in these facilities, and we know that, you know, we've, we've seen the military reports, we've seen that people were dying of, you know, in appalling conditions, uh, you know, with dehydration, hunger, um, just, you know, a complete lack of basic care and standards. I mean, you know, our, you know, like we all deserve better. And I'll add here that this is actually not a partisan issue in my eyes as a you know, physician and shouldn't be a partisan issue for anyone because we're all aging. We're all going to become sicker and we'll be faced with a disability at some point in our life. And 2021 is the year when actually Canada's baby boomers, our largest age demographic, turned 75. So there's going to be more and more need for home care and long term care sort of, um, you know, services in terms of elder care. And now is the time to kind of make this publicly funded, uh, fix the staffing crisis and, you know, end many of these long-standing issues which were exposed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. Doctor, again, thanks for your time today and thanks for the great work that you're doing. We'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amit Arari, of course, uh, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Eastern semifinal. Coming up on Sunday afternoon, of course, at uh, BMO Field in Toronto. It's the uh, Cats heading down their highway to take on the Toronto Argonauts and hoping to punch their ticket to the Grey Cup, of course, the following weekend, which is going to be at Tim Horton Field in Hamilton. Ticat head coach Orlando Steinauer expects a peak performance from our guys. That's the beauty of playoff football. It's, it is just another game, except for the consequences greater. And it's elimination football. So uh, what we want to do is score one more point than the Toronto Argonauts on Sunday. Uh, that would be a good start. Uh, Luke Tasker joins us. Luke, of course, is uh, part of the broadcast crew along with RJ Broadhead to bring you Ticat football here on CHML. Uh, Luke, playoff football, uh, always uh, it's a different season, they always say. Uh, who's the pressure on right now? Is, is these guys go down into the highway? You know, the Cats with a, a pretty decent performance defensively last year, some, or last week rather, some concerns about offense. Uh, heading against Toronto, uh, they have not had great success at BMO Field this year, though, Luke. Is, is that something that's in their head, or did you just set that aside? You know what? It, you set it aside. And to your question, who the pressure is on, you know, I, I do. I would say I think that the Argonauts are, are kind of a little bit more in the hot seat. The pressure's on both teams, right? They, they both want to keep their seasons going. They both want to go to Hamilton for the Grey Cup. But 
they're sort of they're they're the ones that the Thai Cats have to go there and take down. They're they're first. They earned that, and um, and they're they're sitting in that spot after um, after winning games that the Thai Cats couldn't win this season. Uh, but the Thai Cats uh, have played so much better uh, in the second half of the season, with the exception of the game in Toronto. That's sort of the that's yeah. sort of the uh, you know that's sort of the down the the worst the worst game of of probably the last two months of their season. So, you know, it, it's just going to come down to to execution and which teams can can do it better and quicker uh, this Sunday. You know, last week's game, of course, when uh, the Cats beat the Owls, was, the, the, you know, the excitement, of course, in the stadium, as you guys were talking about, was just electric. We had a great time. But I watched the replay of it on TSN a couple of days ago, uh, Luke, and uh, probably the best defensive game the Tac Cats have played, maybe even not just this year, but in the last couple of years. I mean, they they just pushed all the buttons. Offensively, things not going so well. Only 237 yards of offense. Uh, I don't know how many second and eights they had that uh, you guys were describing, and you don't win a whole lot of football games if you keep putting yourself in that situation. But the coaches don't yeah. need to tell these guys they need to ramp it up, do they? You guys, you, you know within yourself that you know we can do better and we have to do better. Yep, uh, and and it certainly comes down to all three phases because, like you said, the defense had some just unbelievable plays um, and just really timely uh, in in how they uh, sort of came together to to end any momentum that that Montreal maybe be, uh, began to sort of gain back at moments in the game. Offensively, you know, the production wasn't as high, but sometimes, you know, the the, the special teams and the defense gave the offense the ball across the center field line, mm-hmm. I think, four times, which is a really interesting stat when you look back at games and wins and losses. Uh, a lot of teams will have a goal to give the offense uh, the ball across the center line at least once in the game. The Ticats had that multiple times in the first half. And so uh, while the yards uh, you know, weren't there to be gained, um, in short, they did what they had to do to win. Yeah. Um, I always, you know, Coach O, you know, I like what he says in those interviews. He goes, we just need to, you know, you just need one, we're just looking to get one more point. And I think, I think part of what he's saying there is that, you know, you're not really trying to, you're not, building you're not trying to get better for the future at this point this is the future this is what it's all about and it doesn't care it doesn't matter how how ugly it looks or or if it uh if it happens in a way that that wasn't expected so long as you end with one more point uh well then you, you did your job and so uh, you know I, I would though hope that we can see a little bit more of a of a, of a productive pass game from the hamilton offense this weekend yeah, that's a, that's a key thing. And your point's well taken, though. I mean, you know, when they got the, those situations, they they cashed in on them. I mean, they put the ball in the end zone. That's right. You mentioned about the, you know, that last time in Toronto was probably the worst game they played all year. Uh, the kicking game has been inconsistent all year long. I mean, you know, if this field goal here hadn't been missed and we got this one instead, we'd be playing in, in Tim Horton Field this week. We'd be the first place team and, and the Argos would be coming after us. But it is what it is. But yeah. They look pretty good on Sunday. I, I, is, is the confidence in on special teams is it back there right now? Because I think it was a little shaky there for a while, but it seems to have tightened things up in the last little while. Yeah, and it's the kicking game is uh, is sort of a game of its own, and especially when it comes to uh, to each individual kicker. And Damagala sort of has the has the uh, uh, the, the responsibility now, um, and it, there has certainly been ups and downs. Um, you know, it's just like. You know, every player has to has to prepare and, and and visualize their own responsibility in that game, and and the winning teams will be 
the ones that the most players on that team were able to play at, at their best level of the season. And so it just comes down in such a pointed way uh, to the to each kicker um, and, and how they're going to um, affect the course of the game. So that'll be an exciting thing to watch. It certainly has been a storyline throughout the season uh, for the Ticats and the, the kicking game in general, Jeff Reinbolt's uh, unit with the Ticats. I thought they did a very good job in, in, the, in the Eastern final. Um, the coverage game and the return game in the CFL is just so impactful uh, to, to, to the score, to how the game plays out. And those, those coverage teams with guys like uh, – with coaches like Jeff Reinbolt, they, boy, they are incentivized and ready to make those plays and to be at their absolute best at this point in the season. That will be exciting to watch as well. The other aspect of this, too, and I know you guys have talked about this, you and RJ, all through the season, is, you know, stuff happens in football games. Injuries can happen in football games, and, and you need somebody to step up. And that happened even before the kickoff last Sunday. Uh, Evans was, you know, on no-go, couldn't play in the secondary. Uh, you shift a couple of guys around, and, and it paid off. I mean, again, it's guys stepping up and saying, yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there, and I'm going to get the job done for you. Uh, exactly, and I think last week was very. I mean, they they certainly ha- are are experiencing some adversity in the defensive secondary, and they have had had such a solid unit there all season. Uh, Tunde Adelike is stands out as a guy. He's yeah. he's being called on to do a lot a lot of things back there, and he's doing it well. And it's not easy to do that. It certainly hasn't been perfect, but they're trusting him with a lot. And then Stavros Katsantonis, a young Canadian who, who I thought. Did I thought had an unbelievable Eastern final? Of course, he had yeah, an interception, and then, but in the la- in the fourth quarter, he had a pass breakup in the score in scoring territory that was yeah, unbelievably in the end zone, yeah. athletic, a gutsy play, and I, I just thought that's a that was a young guy who's who's filling in and for for you know as a result of the adversity they've had at that position due to injury and just doing a, he did a, a absolutely phenomenal job. Well, our good friend Rob Hitchcock, I know you and Rob are tight, and I've known Rob oh, since he was a high school student here in Hamilton, uh, and he's told me stories about what it's like to play safety in the CFL, and, and for Castellanos to step in there in a pressure situation like that and perform is really phenomenal, wasn't it? Uh, it was, and, and uh, Tunde Adelike, when he is able to play uh, the position that, that he calls home, which is free safety, yeah. He is he is one of the best in the league, uh, you know, without question, and he comes downhill and fills gaps with with uh, in, a, in a truly expert manner. So you know, Katz and Tonus had to fill in behind that. And and I, I can and I I like that you bring up Rob, Rob Hitchcock, who was one of the best Hamilton's uh, safeties in, of course, team history. And uh, boy, there's a lot of moving parts back there. That is the quarterback of the defense, and you trying to see a lot of a lot of things happening. And so for a young guy to step in and be able to handle that responsibility speaks to the depth of that of that of that defensive secondary. Well, and one of the things that, that Rob did so well that I'm seeing both Castellanos and certainly Delicate too is uh, supporting the run. I mean, you know, they're back there, why, but if these guys are running the ball like Montreal tried to, uh, those guys are running the tackle. It's incredible the way they do this. Whether I got about a minute left. Weather may be a factor. They, they say it's going to be kind of sloppy, maybe a little rain, maybe some snow. Uh, it's always breezy down on the waterfront in Toronto. Uh, th- does that impact the game dramatically, do you think? Yeah, and you know, I... I my last uh, Eastern final uh, happened to be in the Rogers Center, so we so that yeah. sort of yeah, that sort of eliminated that factor. And and you know to be truthful, yeah, I, I wish that wasn't uh, the, the case because because I think that the weather uh, had an effect on Hamilton's offensive production in the last matchup in Toronto, which certainly wasn't as cold, but it was rainy yeah. that day, uh, and especially early on. And 
of course, the, the the elements affect both teams. That's that's sure. that's classic. That's common, and sure, they both have to deal with it. But that doesn't mean they can they are prepared to deal with it equally. And you know, Hamilton's no stranger to bad weather, or certainly not to wind, and, and uh, played well in the snow this last week. But uh, the the rain is the, the rain is hard for for passing offenses, and so we'll mm-hmm. see how see which team uh, handles that the best. Well, we're looking forward to it. Uh, one o'clock kickoff, of course, uh, from BMO Field with uh, R.J. Broadhead and Luke Tasker calling the game here on CHML. Uh, Luke, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Enjoy the game, and hopefully it's a, it's a victory for the Cats on Sunday. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Take care. Luke Tasker, of course, uh, the color commentator on Ticab Broadcasts. Uh, looking forward to the, to the game, and of course, and uh, we should also remind you uh, that right after the game, as the case for many, many years, of course, uh, the fifth quarter right here on CHML, uh, Rick Zamperin will be uh, manning the microphones to get your reaction uh, to the Cats-Argos game, and uh, of course, hopefully, uh, victory for the Tiger Cats and moving on to the Grey Cup uh, the week after that. But uh, don't look ahead of it, and I know Coach always talked about that, you know, forget about what's going on on the 12th. Uh, job one right now is, is to win the game on Sunday in Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.